that was my microphone. But no, it was a phone phone. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I looked at Robert, like, what did I do wrong? He just looks at you. <laughs> so, I was like, what happened? We are uh, starting a new series. Uh, we are starting our Advent series. We do this every year. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the Advent of Christ. If Advent is a word that you've never heard before, if you're like, what is Advent? Advent is a Latin term that means coming, that Jesus, the Son of God, has come into the world. And we celebrate this season not because we like gifts, which we do like gifts. We don't celebrate because we like family, which we do like family. We celebrate it because Christ has come into the world to save man from their sins. And so that's what we're going to be celebrating over the next four Sundays. And the, the, the topic or the theme of this Advent is what child is this? What child is this? And we're going to be talking about that this child is God. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning. And if you have a Bible, we are in the book of John. So not Luke, but John. John chapter 1. If you want to pull out your Bible or your phone or whatever you use to follow along. Um, I wonder if you are new here to Redeemer Fellowship Church or you're old and you just never do this. Uh, I want to encourage you to open the digital handle. Uh, we all have devices of some sort, right? Um, and if you want to follow along uh, through the sermon notes, instead of relying on the television, you can pull out your phone or your device, whatever you use, and you can follow the sermon notes if you go to the digital handle. You'll see the passage, John chapter 1, and just go below that. There'll be a link. Click on sermon notes, and it will take you to this fancy page with all the things that I'm about to say right there on it. So I want to encourage you to do that. I know for me, I don't know about you, I know for me, it's hard for me to pay attention to. Uh, I am not a great listener, uh, and so what helps me listen is taking notes. Uh, I was talking to someone about this recently. My mom and my grandmother were avid note people, right? My grandmother, would, we found books and books and books. My grandfather can, can talk about this. Uh, books and books and books of notes. She took notes. And uh, I've kind of followed along in that spirit and that tradition is of taking notes, right? And so I want to encourage you, if you're not a big note person, maybe this is a good time to start being a note person, especially when we're talking about God's Word. Uh, it's a great way to listen. We're about listening and paying attention because if you're not hearing from me, you're hearing from God, right? This is God's Word for His people, not Matt's Word for His people, but God's Word for His people. So just encourage you with that. So John chapter 1 Starting in verse 1, we're going to go actually all the way to verse 18. Um, and so we're going to read the entire prologue here of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
two were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful to be in your house to hear from your word. As I said before, this is your word, not my word, not anyone else's word, but your word, Lord. This is not even John's word. This is your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand and to believe your word, to base our life off of it, to root our life in it, Lord, to trust your word above all else. We pray for those who are not with us because they're traveling and seeing family this uh, this Thanksgiving season, Lord. I pray that you would uh, bring them back safely. Lord, we pray for the people that are here that are new. We praise you for bringing them with us. I pray that they'll be encouraged not only by your word, but by the community of believers that are here at Hebrew Fellowship Church. Lord, we pray for those who are quarantining and sick and, and trying to stay safe from COVID. Lord, we pray for them as well. Keep them safe. Lord, we pray as we enter into this Christmas season, Lord, a very unusual Christmas season as we, with COVID and the pandemic surrounding this season, Lord. May the Lord, in the midst of the season, may we recognize the sadness that we not, may not be able to see people that we typically see during this Christmas season, but may this celebration of Christ and the celebration of the advent of Christ be sweeter this year than any other year. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of this uh, sermon is uh, a bit unusual. Um, and I promise you, uh, I'm not going to read this poem by length. It would be way too long. Uh, it would be, I think it's five pages long. It's an epic uh, poem written by a British lord uh, called Loxley Hall. That's the name of the sermon, Loxley Hall. And the interesting thing about this poem is that President Truman, Harry Truman, if you don't know your American presidential history, Harry Truman was president after Dwight D., uh, after FDR, after uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, and he was uh, also present during the end of World War II. And he's the one that famously, you know, dropped the atomic bomb on the Japanese twice, actually. Um, and he would keep this poem in his pocket at all times. He had written it out as a high school student when he was a high school student um, in 1901 at Independence, Missouri. Has anyone been to Independence, Missouri? The hometown of uh, Harry Truman. It's an interesting little uh, town in Missouri called Independence, uh, Independence is the name of the city. And so he kept this poem, and this poem he would bring out during times where he was being kind of, um, where people were challenging him on his, on his um, conviction of the United Nations and, 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 and believing in the United Nations and believing in the importance of that institution and starting that institution for the sake of world peace. He was enraptured by this poem by Alfred Lord Tinson. Tinson called Loxley Hall. 
Like I said, he kept it dead in his pocket. And while he was present, he would pull it out. It would encourage him during this time after the war, World War II, this massive war where millions of people died. The entire world was in conflict from Japan all the way to Europe. Was in conflict for several years, and when this, this, this trial of trying to bring the world together to create world peace, he would always pull off this poem to encourage him in his work. And it starts with, and the, and the way that the poem is structured is about a boy who sits on top of Loxley Hall and looks out into the world. And it talks about the nourishment of a useful sublime. And in the way that the, the poem goes is when I dipped into the future far as human eye could see, I saw the vision of the world and all of the wonder that it would be. So the, 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 the boy would sit above Loxley Hall and look out into the beach and to the sea and be comforted. And he would look into the vision of the world and to the wonder of the future. A lot of us would look out into the future with our eyes and hope for what? Comfort for us and our families. Maybe a return to normal peace from war or conflict. Maybe that's the vision of the world that we see. Maybe that's the wonder of the future, the, the idealism, the, the hope of a future that is better than today. The poem continues as yearning for the large excitement that the coming years would yield eager-hearted as a boy when first leaves his father's field. And at night along the dusky highway, near and nearer dawn, sees in heaven the light of London flaring like a dreamy dawn. And his spirit leaps within him to be gone before, he, before him then. Underneath the light he looks at and among the throngs of men. Men, my brothers, men the workers, every reaping something new, that which they have done, but earnest of the things that they shall do. For I dip into the future, far as human eye could see, saw the vision of the world and all the wonder that it would be. Saw the heavens filled with commerce, agassy of magic cells, Pilots of the purple twilight drooping down with halsey bells. Heard the heavens filled with shouting and their rained ghostly dew from the nation's airy navies grappling in the central blue. Far along the worldwide whisper of the south wind rushing warm with the standards of the people plunging through the thunderstorm. Till the war drum thrum no longer and the battle flags were whirled and the parliament of man, the federation of the world. There the common sense of the most shall hold a fretful reign in it all, and the kindly earth shall slumber, lapped in universal law. You can see how Truman, this poem, encouraged him and gave him hope. The hope of a future world where there will be no war, no longer any, any strife or conflict. That's the vision of the world, the parliament of men, not the parliament of different nations, but a parliament of all nations coming together for the sake of peace. These words provided hope and resolution for President Truman when he argued for the United Nations, a world without war, a world united in peace. But while that poem has to do with John chapter 1, because it's a very similar vision that the people of Israel had during their time of conflict. You can think of boys, young boys, surrounded by the Persian Empire, surrounded by the, the, by, by the Greek Empire, surrounded by the Roman Empire, and looking into a world that looked different than it was then. They were occupied, Israel was occupied by different empires who rise and fall. They, through their groaning, would yonder into the future, hoping for a better world to come. Isaiah chapter 9, 2 through 7, we all know the, 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 uh, the, the story quite well. 
This was Psalms, Isaiah 9, 2 through 7 was like the Israel's Locksley Hall. They, they saw into a world that would be different. They saw a great light that would come to bring priests. A child would be born in power in the spirit of King David. The government shall sit upon his shoulders. He shall be a wonderful counselor, a prince of peace, mighty God. Right? He would come into the world and bring peace to the people of Israel. They would restore their nation to them, restore their kingdom, restore their temple, restore everything that they held dear, that God would provide that back. You might imagine a young Jewish boy or girl hearing stories of the past and told of visions of the world and all the wonder that it would be. What has happened since the coming of Christ? There's been 400 years of silence. No prophets, no visions, no revelations from God to his people, his chosen nation. All they knew was heartache, minor successes, but mostly failures. Israel, Jerusalem, was just simply an outpost between one great city to the next, between one great empire and the next. Nothing significant, not important. Traded from empire to empire, ruler to ruler, emperor to emperor, kingdom to kingdom. Hoping and yearning for a return to the glory days, believing their true needs were external. They just had their nation back. They had their kingdom back. They had their, their what they had before during the time of David and the time of Solomon and times of the kings. The good old days. Then all would be better and good. The problem is, is, the problem was not Rome, the problem was not Caesar, their problem was their own sinful hearts. Their internal nature was the real problem. This continues to be the real problem in the world. We think the external needs to be fixed, but really the internal hearts of us need to be fixed. It's very true today. COVID is not the problem. Problem. Your financial strife is not the problem. Your relational turmoil is not your problem. Your soul is your problem. It's true of Israel. It's true of us as well. A problem that was created in the Garden of Eden, a new beginning from our souls is our true need. And that's where Jesus comes in. That's where the passage for today is, is so important. John chapter 1, 1 through 18 is so important because it tells of a new beginning. It's littered with language that exposes to a new beginning. So the main point is this. The world, the, sorry, the word who was in the beginning with God and was God has come into the world with a new beginning. The word who was in the beginning with God and was God has come into the world with a new beginning. The whole point of John, John says this in the end of his Gospel, John 20, verse 30, that the gospel is about the word and was written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger, is the word. The word. So that when you read this, when you're exposed to who the word is, when you're exposed to Jesus Christ, you will believe in him and you will be saved. That is the whole point of John. And John starts his gospel, he starts his prologue, exposing us and revealing to us the identity of the word. So point number one, or your sub-point A, if you're taking notes, is who is the Word? 
It's interesting, you don't get the name Jesus Christ in the first 18 verses, do you? You're not exposed to who the name of this person is. All that you know is that he is the Word. That's what you're introduced to. You're not introduced to a fancy story of angels and shepherds and mangers and wise men. John gives you this deep and takes you way back to the beginning of time. That's his that's his incarnation story. That's his advent story. That's his birth story. Who is the Word? Well, he says, in the beginning. And if you are a reader of the Bible and you see in the beginning, that should remind you of what major passage in the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John starts his gospel saying, in the beginning. Hence why I'm saying this is a new beginning. Before history began, before creation, at the start of the universe... In the beginning. Genesis means in the beginning. This is the story of the beginning. John speaks of a new beginning, a new creation moment, a new event. Hence why the words in verse, the first five verses is beginning, life, light, darkness. Terms that we see in what passage in Genesis chapter 1. John is exposing us to a new beginning. There is a new creation moment happening with the word. It says that the Word was with God. The Word was in the beginning. At the beginning of time, the Word was continually there in the beginning. He said, therefore, the Word had an eternal nature. The Word is like God. In similar passages, like in Exodus chapter 3, I am the I am. I have always existed. Well, the Word is also eternally existed. He was already. He was not created. He has, the eternal, he has an eternal nature. He has, has an unchanging nature. The Word was there with God. He's always been with God. So John exposes us not only that the Word was in the beginning, not, that he, not only has He always existed, not only is He eternal, but that He has a relationship with God, that He is with God. He's always been with God. The new beginning is like the former creation. The Word and God are together, working together. So this new creation, this new beginning that John is exposing us to, God and the Word are working together just like they did in the time of creation. It's interesting, why does John use the word the Word? He could have used different words. John Piper talks about this in his Advent devotional about this passage, he says, why does he pick the word? He, John Piper said he could have picked the deed, the deed was in the beginning, or the deed was with God, or the, the, deed, uh, the, the deed is God. He doesn't say that. He says the word. The deed is kind of ambiguous, right? If you do something, you always have to explain why you did it, right? If you do something good, you always have to explain why you did it. Or if you did something bad, why did you think to do that? Like, you always have to... I do that all the time with my kids. Why did you do that? Why did you think that was smart? Why did you get all your toys and take them from one place and put them all the way down to the other side of the house? Why did you do this? And the kid has to try to explain. So these are ambiguous. They don't actually reveal motive or intent. So I have to explain why did you do this? John did use the word of the thought. But thoughts don't have a visible or a tangible way of explaining itself. It's just a thought. So when you think of something, what do you have to do to express it? You have to use words. 
He didn't use the word the feeling, or the feeling was with God. Why? Because feelings are not clear. They, 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 we don't understand the intentions or of feelings. Feelings like deeds are ambiguous. We don't understand the meaning sometimes of people's feelings. They need to be explained. So the word is very helpful here. And even uh, in kind of the Old Testament thinking and the way that Hebrews thought about the word, uh, in Exodus 19.17, the way that they would sometimes read this passage is they would actually read it as the word of God. Not just God, because God was such a, uh, such a word they would not use very often in the Jewish culture and the Hebrew understanding, so they would use the word of God. To express God. The word is a designation of the divine. All things made by God's word. The Greeks saw logos, the word, as an impersonal principle or force. So even the Greek culture understood the significance of the word, the logos. The the principle, the truth. But the Hebrews understood that the word is the passionate involvement of God. That the God who created expresses himself through his word. Psalm 33, 6. By the words of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord. The word is, uh, the word of God is the bridge between what the transcendent God and this material universe. Even Luke chapter 1, verse 2, uh, Luke says, The eyewitness and ministers of the word. Talking about the gospel, of the, of the ministry and life of Christ, he describes it as the word. John three thirty four. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Man's word is the means by whereby he reveals what he's thinking. We even say sometimes, do I have your word? Why? Because a word, if you say, I will do something, you're expressing the intent and the thinkings of that person. I will do this. I will give you my word. I don't know if you ever watch like criminal shows or mob shows. They always say, well, do I have your word? Well, obviously these guys, don't, they give their word, they don't mean what they think or what they, what they say. But usually when you say, do I have your word? You're saying, yes, you can trust me. I, you, can, you, you have my word. I will accomplish this. I will do this. It says not only that, uh, that the word was in the beginning, not only was the word with God, but the word was God. The word is separated from God, the Father. But now he's explained as equal to God. So don't think the Word and God as if like, there's only one God, one person, like the way Muslims think of God, the way the Jews think of God. But that God is three persons. This is the expression of the Trinity, that the Word is also God. God the Father and the Word. And the Word is equal to God. Everything that is true about God is also true of the Word. Not similar or divine-like, but rather is God. Monotheism was so important to the Hebrews. Why? Because they were really the only nation in the world at that time that believed in one God. The Romans believed in a multitude of gods. The Greeks believed in a multitude of gods. The Egyptians believed in a multitude of gods. The barbarians believed in a multiple gods. The Chinese and the Asians believed in ancestral spirits, so they believed in multiple gods. The Hebrews were unique in the world 
time because they believe in one true God. And John just says that there is more to God. There's more to him. That he is Trinitarian. And obviously John doesn't get into the Holy Spirit, but we know that as Christians that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he exposes the reader here that there is more to God. There's also the Word. That the Word was continually and always been God. And all things were made through the Word. All things owed their existence to the Word. All things were made through the Word. Not by the Word, but through the Word. The Father God is the source of all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 Helps us out with this really well. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Both were involved in creation. The Father created, but did it through the agency of the Word, and continues to be true today. As he says here in verse, in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that has been made that was made. Nothing that is made, not even only in creation, but everything past that as well. Everything that is created is obviously from God, but through the Word. We also expose a little bit more about the Word. In him is life. Again, like I said, this is a new beginning. This is a new creation. In the beginning, God, the Word was with God. The Word was with, in the beginning, God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in Him is life. We see in Genesis 2, verse 7, that when, when God created Adam from the dust, He did what? He breathed life into him. And the man became a living creature. The gift of God through the Word, that life is a gift of God through the Word. Because there is life in the Word, there is life in the world. Because there is life in the Word, there is life in the world. Life is in the Word. Life exists in the Word. John 3.16, a passage that we all know quite well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. How do they have eternal life? Because life is in the word. It's in the word. And when you believe in Christ, you're united in Christ and therefore have life. You cannot have life outside of Christ. It's in Christ. A new life is needed. This new beginning, this new creation brings a new life which concludes that something has happened to humanity that requires a new beginning, a new creation, a new life. Something's happened since creation that has affected humanity, that has caused them to need a new beginning, that has caused them to need new life. We get a little bit more here about the word. The life was the light of men. The word, the life, is also the light bearer. John 8, 8, 12, he is the light of the word, of the world. When the, the blind had no sight, Jesus healed them, and their sight was given back. They received light. Jesus brings light into a dark world. Again, taking us back to creation, what is happening before God creates light? There was darkness that hovered 
over the deep. And what did God do? He said, let there be light. Light not only talks about light in, in darkness when there's night outside, when there's darkness in a room, we turn on a light so that we can see what is in the room. So we don't fall over or knock into the wall. Light also brings comfort to us, doesn't it? It brings awareness to us. It also brings joy. Christmas lights are all about bringing joy to kids. What do they love? They love the sparkling lights. They let the colorful lights. What do you take a child when you want to, during Christmas season often, you'll drive around neighborhoods, right, looking at lights. Why? Because it brings them happiness. Light is important. And light is from the Word. Jonathan says that light shines in darkness to oppose darkness, to dispel darkness. The light continually shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word doesn't just simply light for a moment. It doesn't simply just flash for a moment. It continually shines in the darkness. It never ceases to shine. And what is darkness? Darkness is the evil environment, the fallen nature of the world. And we walk in the world, and you will not walk in darkness. Sorry, if you walk in the word, you will not walk in darkness, John says. We live in a fallen world. We live in a dark world. Like I said before, something's happened since creation that has caused the world to be covered in darkness. Hence, light needs to come into the world. Light needs to be brought into a dark place. A new beginning, a new creation, new life, new light. To shine in the darkness. And the darkness can never overcome the light. The world lacks light. It lacks life because of what happened in the beginning and God created and then man fell into sinful nature. We live in a dark world. The Bible exposes us that our sinful souls are dead. And we need new creation. We need a new beginning. We need new life. We need light. This is story exposes us to the simple condition of humanity's soul. Like I said before when I started, the context of John chapter 1 is the 400 years of silence. That God didn't reveal anything. He didn't give a prophet. He didn't give anything to Israel for 400 years. Nothing. Before Jesus came into the world. And they believed so strongly that they needed a national renewal. Some national revolution. Some national change. That their nation was dead. That their nation and their, and their culture and their people were surrounded by darkness. That the world was broken. But what they truly need is renewal of their hearts and their souls. What they need is a new beginning. What they need is a new heart. What they need is a new life. And what they need is light into their hearts. The darkness of their hearts is the problem, not the darkness of the world. Even though this is what they needed, it's what you need, what I need, they rejected it. The second sub-point is this, that the, world, the Word was coming into the world. The Word was coming into the world. Verse 9 and 11. The true light was coming into the world. This Word, who was in the beginning, who was with God, who is God, who in Him is life, is the light of men, the true light is coming into the world. 
the word was coming into the world. Not a prophet, not a judge, not a priest, not a king. He is king, but not like a, a, a king that is, uh, that is like Samson or some king that's going to conquer and, and take over uh, the, the Roman Empire. But the word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God. All things were created through the word, and the word was and the word is life, and the word is also the true light. He is coming into the world. It makes you think of, uh, of, of the British are coming. The British are coming. It's just a, oh my gosh, the British troops are coming into our city to, to take over the colonies. The king is coming. The king is coming. But you Star Wars fan, remember in, in uh, uh, Return of the Jedi when Darth Vader tells his little, like, I don't know what this guy is, some type of admiral or something, that the Emperor is coming, Death Star, and he's like, the Emperor's coming here? You can tell a fear in his eyes. Yeah, Aslan and the Chronicles of Narnia, and Aslan is moving, Aslan is coming. He causes fear upon the White Witch. The King is coming. The Word is coming. Yet, the world, the world did not know him. The world made the world. He's continuously in the world. But the world didn't know him. How can that be? How can the world not know him? He made it. He's always been in the world as, the, as God. But why do they not know him? Obviously, the immediate context of this is that the people that Christ will, will contact with, who he will talk with, he will teach. They, many of them will reject him. They will not know him, his true identity. Even the word know is not intellectually that they will know about him or know content about him, but that they will love him as a friend, that they will be in the right relationship with him. But the world is not just the created dirt and the atoms and the molecules that make up the universe. The world is talking about the people of the world. They should know him. Romans 1, 21-23 says they should know God. They should trust God, but they don't know. They don't trust. They reject God. Ephesians 2, 1-2 says that they're dead. They're children of wrath. They're following the prince of the air. Following their passions. Living in darkness. Again, I, I keep on telling you that the issue is not the Romans. The issue is not the evil that surrounded Israel. It's not, uh, it's not even for us. It's not the COVID. It's not terrorists. It's not uh, wars and diseases. That's not our problem. Our problem is our souls. And the reason why Jesus didn't come to solve all of their external problem is why they rejected him. The word came into the world with life and light, and they rejected him. They didn't want the eternal revolution. They wanted an external revolution. And when Jesus was arrested and crucified, when he said, you have to eat my body and drink my blood, when he says all these things, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. He is not the revolutionary leader we need and what we want. Let's reject him. Move on to someone else. 
Because why? They didn't think their eternal hearts needed changing. They thought their external world needed changing. For the word came into the world to give life to our souls. Christ won't conquer the Romans for us. Christ won't end poverty or wars or external evil. Christ won't make our, my life easier. Therefore, I will reject him and try something else. Third point is this, that the world, that's right, the word brings life, light, and privilege to sinners who believe in his name. The word brings life, light, and privilege to sinners who believe in his name. Verse 12, those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you trust in the God who is revealed in the word, if you know him and trust him, you become a child of God. You receive life in the word, in the word. As, as John, Jesus does on the disciples in John 20, verse 22, he breathed on them, and he, he gave them the Holy Spirit, and he gave them eternal life. Very similarly to what the G, God does to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, when he breathed on him, and he gave them life. Jesus gives the disciples life after his resurrection in John 20, verse 22. If you believe in his name, right, what do they do? They believe that Christ Jesus rose from the dead, and what were they given? Life. When you receive him and believe in his name, you receive life. You receive the light. You receive the, you receive the status of being a child of God. The privilege, the status. You're born again into the heavenly family. Not by blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. God does this. It's not by your effort. It's not by your consciousness saying, I'm going to do right, not wrong. I'm going to be moral. I'm going to be more moral than anyone else. It's funny. I've been reading President Obama's new memoir and uh, during Thanksgiving. I didn't vote for him, but I find him fascinating as a person, so I wanted to read more about his life. Talk about someone who believes very much in the morality of the human heart, that humans could, could be moral without God. That's President Obama, especially. He didn't, he doesn't, I mean, he says he believes in God, but he was not a Christian, if you read more about his life. There's a belief that you can just be moral and good by the will of man. But God's saying, you cannot be given new life. You cannot have the light, the true light that leads you out of darkness. You cannot be called a child of God if you do not believe in the word, if you don't believe in Christ. Don't receive him. It's not by the blood. It's not by the will of man. It is by God. Belief. Belief that you are spiritually dead. That without Christ you walk in darkness. That you're actually of the world. That you're an orphan. Separated from God. And that through Jesus, through Christ, you are adopted to God. What is, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 through 6 is that you're blessed, right? Blessed is, is the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has done what? In Christ has given you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, right? You're a child of God, so therefore you've all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In love, you are predestined, what? To adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. But you have to believe that you're a sinner and that you need adoption. You need to be brought into God's family. 
and the Word has come into the world. You receive him, you don't reject him as many have done foolishly. You are adopted, you are given the right to become children of God. It's very similar to Plato's allegory of the cave. I don't know if you're philosophy people. I know Jacob Kendler is a philosophy person in here. Everyone knows about the allegory of the cave, right? We, the, the darkness, we're in the dark cave. We only see shadows of the true things, the true forms. And then we go into the light, right? And exposed to what is actually true. The Greeks would have understood what logos means. They would have understood what true light means. They would have gone back to Plato. We also, without Jesus, are literally living in a dark cave. Thinking what is true, what we're shown is actually real, but actually they're just shadows of what is real. The truth, what is real, is only exposed to us through Christ. Because he is the light. He is life. The the last point is this, that the word is the child in the manger. The word is the child in the manger. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is verse 14. The The word who is always been God, who is continuously God, who became flesh, for what reason? That we may become children of God, which is of God, not by our means. The new beginning, this new creation, this new life, this new light, this new family is through the word. Coming into the world, coming into the world, and by becoming flesh, this gets us to the baby in the manger. This gets us to Christmas, the Advent, the baby in the manger. The Word takes on flesh and dwells among us. As God walked with Adam in the garden, He dwelt in the in the tabernacle with Israel. Now God dwells with us, with His presence in the flesh. This is all going back to Genesis chapter one, and all of John one is going back to Genesis one. The, the Eden, the Adam and Eve in the garden with God and this perfect presence of God experience. And what happens, they're kicked out of the garden, out of the presence of God. Life is taken away from them. The light of God is taken away from them. And what, what needs to be reestablished is a new creation, a new beginning, new life, new light, new presence of God, and that it is the Word. So the baby in the manger... The baby in the manger is now God dwells with us with his presence in the flesh. God's presence with us. What caused humanity to fall into the death and the darkness and separation for God was sin. Sin. Your eternal, your nature, you're born in the world with this condition. You are born in this world sinful. That is your eternal nature. Our souls need transformation. And the Word brings transformation to your soul. Too often, though, we want we want external changes. We want external revolutions. But the Word did not come in His first advent to change the brokenness and the evilness of the world. He came to change the eternal soul. And everyone that has is born in this world has this sinful soul, and it needs transformation. It needs revolution. It needs renewal. John ends his prologue with this fascinating passage. No one has ever seen God, the only true God, who is at the Father's side. He, the Word, has made him known. The baby in the manger is God, always been God. Continuously, within the beginning, 
was with God, who was God. All things were made through him. Nothing was made not nothing was made that was made except through the word. He in him is life. He is the true light. He's always been God. He's still God. As in the beginning with God, he brings a new beginning. He brings a new creation. He brings new life. He brings light into darkness. He brings an entry into the family of God. He brings the experience of God's presence. Where God's presence is there, there's grace. Where God's presence is, there's grace. But only if you recognize your internal condition, the story that I was going to tell the children, but then forgot. Don't want to have to have them come up later. Sorry. Oh, Charity's the only one that knows this. She's like, what, what, why did I do it, Matt? I can't believe you forgot. But I was going to read Mark 9, 10, verse 45. Mark 10, verse 45. This is the whole point of Christmas. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Christmas is about. That's what the baby in the manger is about. That you would be reconciled to God. Not that there would be harmony in the world. Not that there would be good tidings in the world or peace everywhere. That's not the point of the baby in the manger. And too often, the world has taken over Christmas. Because the baby in the manger speaks to the sinfulness of your heart and my heart. That's what the baby in the manger says. It does not, it's not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor for peace and harmony between different socioeconomic groups or racial groups or metaphor for material wealth to the poor the charity. I'm not saying those things aren't important, but Christmas is not the place where you get inspiration for those things. It's not a metaphor for those things. It's not a metaphor uh, for these things that typically get attached to Christmas. When the angel says to the shepherds, don't be afraid, behold, I bring good tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people, this is not a statement for worldwide peace. This is not a statement for worldwide harmony, even though people use it all the time. And maybe even give it to Santa Claus, the one who speaks it. It's not about that. Rather, it is a statement of truth that announces peace where the true conflict lies. You with God. Put more directly, your war against God. Your rebellion against God. If your soul needs peace, it needs transformation, reforming, it needs life, it needs light, it needs grace and reconciliation. So what am I, what, I want to just say this. It's a great article in Gospel Coalition about this. The word broken is overused in Christianity. It's overused. Too often we say that Jesus saves us from our brokenness, which he does, but that's not actually all the way accurate, is it? When Jesus says, well, he, Jesus saves us from our, our hatred towards one another, yes, he does that, but that's not actually accurate what Jesus came to do. The baby in the manger who went to the cross died for your sins against God. That's the conflict. You have sinned against God. You were born in this world. Your children have sinned against God. Even Nathan, Ice, who just came to this world, is a sinner before God. 
didn't know that. Haley knows that. What all of our children need, what all of our souls need, it needs new life. It needs a new beginning. It needs a new creation. It needs the light that only comes from God. It needs to be adopted into God's family. And that comes through recognizing your sin and receiving the word and trusting in the word for the forgiveness of your sin. And if you receive him, if you believe in his name, you get the right to become, you've given the right to become children of God. So this Advent series, as we think through this, as we slowly talk about Jesus and we talk about the incarnation of Christ, who is this child? This child is God. God. Who is in the beginning, who is with God and is God. And he came into the world to save sinners. Come pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you for your, your beautiful word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is not just simply a word on a, on a page. But you sent your, the word into the world. Your word is your son, your eternal son. That you sent into the world. The true light, the life is in him. Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you sent him into the world. But it's a warning to us as well. That if we don't receive him, if we don't believe in his name, we, do, we are not given the right to become children of God. Our souls remain dead. Our souls remain in darkness. And we remain orphans from your family. But if we trust in the word, if we trust in Christ, if we trust on his word on the cross, his word on the cross, we are given the right to become children of God. If there's anyone in this room who have maybe casually kind of been Christians and gone to church and kind of been part of families that are Christian but have never actually trusted in Christ. Recognize that internally they are sinful and broken and, and, and opposed to God. And the only way that they are made whole, the only way that they are given grace, the only way that they are given life and light and acceptance is through Christ. Lord, I pray that they would trust in Him, Lord, work in their hearts to trust in Christ, trust in the Lord. Lord, we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up uh, the Lord's Supper, but before we do that, um,